Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Well, 1 John chapter number 4, let's look at it together. Uh, just in case you've missed this series, I want to just very briefly catch you up. This series is called Confident Before God because John writes this book and he tells you why he wrote it. He says, I, I'm writing this to you so that you can know that you have eternal life and so that you can have confidence, so that you can know that you belong to God. You can know that he hears and answers your prayers. You can know that you're his and he's yours. And there can be this certainty of spiritual reality in your life. And he says, I want you to know this by these tests. And he gives three basic categories of tests. One is this doctrinal category, what we believe. One is this uh, the social test, here's how we love. Then the other is this moral test on here's how we live. So what we believe, how we love, and, and how we live. And today we're going to see two of them in conjunction with each other, what we believe and how we love working together. And I want to start uh, in verse number 7. There are two basic units of Scripture here that we're putting together, and John puts together. One is verses 1 through 6, we'll hit it in a minute. The other is verses 7 through 11, and I want us to start with 7 through 11. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, this passage of Scripture, if I read it to just about anyone in our culture, they would probably get excited about this. Even if they didn't have a belief in God, maybe they were atheists or agnostic, they would generally approve of these verses. This is talking about love. And most people, secular people, would say, hey, this is what we need. You know, we don't need doctrine. We don't need these clear lines of division. We don't need these, these uh, theological things that divide us. Love is what we need. And we see God is love in this passage, right? Here is God with this inclusive love, with this expanding love, with this even tolerant love, right? God who is loving sinners even though they don't love him back. And so we ought to model this. The doors and arms of the church ought to be as open as the arms of Jesus. Uh, if we were somehow to create lines of division, then that would be sectarian, that would be mean-spirited, that would be narrow-minded, and many people would take this passage of Scripture and say, you know what really matters for the church? What really matters is how we love. It's not so much what we believe. What really matters is how we love. What we believe, so long as we're good-intentioned and we're not hurting anybody and we push those good intentions in the direction of God, great. Two thumbs up. Let's just love each other. An example of this, and I would dare say a classic example of this, was a few years back, an Episcopal bishop of Virginia uh, had the annual meeting of the diocese for the Episcopal Church, and this bishop proceeded to chide the conservative members of the church because uh, they were concerned with the denomination appointing or consecrating its first homosexual bishop. And the bishop said, and I'm going to quote exactly, he said, quote, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. Now, in case someone thought he, you know, I think he just, he mixed up the words. That was an accident, you know, that was, that was a faux pas. Reverend Peter J. Lee went on to say to the 500 Episcopal, Episcopal bishops that were there, as a heretic, you're only guilty of a wrong opinion. As a schematic, you have torn and divided the body of Christ. Choose heresy every time. After the delegates applauded him, he went on to say, I hope that we can avoid both. I hope that we can avoid heresy and schism. But this is very popular, very in vogue, even amongst religious people, amongst those that are the supposed church. 
to say, hey, what's the most important thing? Well, the most important thing is love. If I have to sacrifice my doctrine so that we can stay together and we can love each other, I mean, look at 1 John chapter number 4. God is love. We love each other. Look at this sacrificial love. Now, the question is, is the bishop right? Is heresy just a wrong opinion? Well, you can't take verses 7 through 11 and detach them from verses 1 through 6 because they go together. And I want to start with 1 through 6, which will feel very step-on-your-toes exclusive. Then we'll get to 7 through 11, which feels very warm-hearted and inclusive. And how in the world do these two things go together? So let's look at verse number 1. 7 through 11 talk about love, but 1 through 6 talk about truth. So, beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. All right, let's stop here for a minute. It is almost as if John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is referring back to this teaching that Jesus gave. Jesus gave a parable one time. It was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he said there's this guy who goes out and he sows uh, his seed, good seed, on, on good ground. And then the enemy comes behind him and the enemy sows tares. And it's meant to, uh, to divide and to kill and to, and to ruin the field. And Jesus went on to explain the parable. It wasn't one that he left hanging and said, if you have ears to hear, then you can hear. The end. But he explained it. He says, the, the field is the world, and the person sowing is, is me, the Lord, and the good seed are my followers. And the enemy is the devil, and his followers are the tares that he sows into the world. And Jesus uses this parable to say to his disciples, look, here's how it's going to be. I'm going to send you on mission into the world. You're going to have the truth, and I'm going to plant you firmly. And the devil is not going to be able to destroy you, so he will attempt to deceive, and he will plant false prophets. He will plant his own seed. And the thing about wheat and tares is that when, it's, when they're young, when, it, when they're little, you can't really tell the difference hardly between the wheat and the tares. But as they grow, not only can you tell the difference, you also will, will notice that the tares are harmful to the field, that they are poisonous, that they kill the field. And he says this is the way it's going to go, that the devil will try to deceive and he will try to plant tares among the wheat and this will happen. And John is saying it's happened. Okay? Jesus said it would, but it has. Do not, do not be alarmed. Do not be surprised. I want you to know that many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, John is not a rogue apostle who's paranoid. He, he is not older and crankier, and he just sees the world glass half empty. That's not who he is. This was the teaching not just of John, but of all the apostles. You can look at Peter, and he would warn of this. You can look at Acts and, and uh, Paul, and he would warn of this. You can look at Timothy, where Paul warns of this. Many people note, they think that it's, it's less than coincidental, that John, although we do not know his intended audience specifically, he writes to believers. In 1 John, uh, most people think that he was specifically targeting those that were at the church at Ephesus because John lived there in his latter years. Those would have, that would have been his community. Paul actually had the same elders from that same church at one point in time, and he warned them of the same thing. In Acts chapter number 20, when he goes to Miletus, and he pulls the Ephesian elders over to Miletus, and he sits them down, and he says, I'm going to leave. You're not going to have me anymore. I'm, I'm gone, and I want you to know that when I leave, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It's the same warning to the same group of people. Paul's saying it's coming. John is saying it has come. And they're saying this is the case. There are false prophets. Jesus said the same thing. And I know that this isn't the, the fluffiest or, or the, the most fun sermon to hear from the get-go, but Jesus said the same thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 7, very clearly, that false prophets will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. And he goes on to say, just a few verses later, that because of the false prophets and because of the people believing what they were selling, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out devils? Have we not done many marvelous works? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. 
Well, they did some spiritual stuff. I mean, aren't they on Team Jesus? No, they were deceived by false prophets. No, those are strong words. How do you test the spirits? How do you know if someone is a false prophet? Well, one of the ways you don't do it is by the spiritual gifts test. And Jesus makes that clear because there are people who are not on Team Jesus who are prophesying, right? There are people, and there are some that would say, here's how we know if something's spiritual. Does it feel and look spiritual? You know, do they, can they prophesy or can they speak in tongues or can they do miracles or can they pour oil out of a, out of a water bottle or, you know, what, what can they do? That's not how you test if something is of God or not. There is a supernatural realm. That's why he says he refers to them as spirits that are behind things and supernatural things that can happen that are not of God. People can walk on hot coals. There is black magic. Those things do exist. And they're not of God, but they are supernatural in nature. So how do I test the spirits? I mean, these people here were not of God, and they were on, they were on the demon cast out ministry team, right? If, I don't know if you've been around church ministry for a long period of time, but if you get tapped to be on the demon cast out team, that's varsity level, okay? There's, uh, there's, there's levels of, of what you can do. And casting out demons, and they're like, hey, Susie, she is oppressed and possessed by a devil, and we're going to go over to her house. We need your prayers and your voice to sing and, and your insight to be able to cast out the devil. Like, that's, that's varsity level. They were doing this stuff, but they were not of God. So how do I test the spirits? He will say, John will say, if you put these together, 7 through 11, we are to love, but 1 through 6, we love with our head on a swivel, and we, we don't stick our head in the sand, and we are searching as Christians. Is this from God or not? Meaning, Christians are not happy that just anything that is vaguely spiritual is on TV. Vaguely spiritual doesn't cut it. Christians are not just going to buy any book that is supposedly from a Christian author with a Christian publisher at a Christian bookstore or on a Christian book, christianbooks.com. That doesn't mean that it's Christian. There has to be more of a discerning spirit than that, right? I am grateful to some degree you can argue about the FDA and the place that it plays in our, in our society and how far they can go and what uh, measures should be in place. But I'm personally grateful that the FDA exists so that I can go to Giant Eagle and I can pick a box of cereal and I can go home and I have never one time thought to myself, oh, I hope it's not poison. I've never one time thought that, right? It's not the wild, wild west. There are control measures in place, and I am certain that Captain Crunch isn't going to poison me. It may not be healthy for me, but it's not going to poison me, right? There is no spiritual FDA that will approve of all the books on the shelf of the Christian bookstore so that you can be sure when you pull it off, it won't poison you. That doesn't exist. You have to, as a believer, have a discerning spirit. You have to be able to try the spirits, whether they are of God or not. Don't be surprised this Christmas, this Easter, when PBS puts out a special about Jesus, and it's bad. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked at Christmas when Newsweek runs a whole article and it's on the cover of who is Jesus and did he really come and what is the incarnation and it doesn't line up with actual biblical theology. That's not a surprise, okay? There are many things that are in the world that are false that you have to be discerning. So the question is, how do you grow in the command that John gives to be able to discern the spirits, right? Now, you may have not have thought of this as something that you have to grow in, but you do if you're a Christian. I meet Christians all the time, and I may ask them, hey, what are you working on right now? What are you honing in on in your spiritual life? What are you trying to improve on? And I'll get good answers. I'm trying to improve my Bible study. I'm trying to read more. I'm trying to memorize some verses. I'm really working on my prayer life. I'm trying to fast a little bit more. I'm, whatever it is, I want to be more faithful in my church attendance. All good answers. But I very rarely, if ever, hear someone say, you know what I'm working on? I am working on my ability to discern the spirits and know if something is truly of God or if it is false. But that is a spiritual discipline that you need to grow in and I need to grow in. It's 
I'm happy to serve as a pastor and guard the, guard the flock and, and be a gatekeeper of sorts. And I'm happy to take a text or an email or a call. Hey, what do you think about this book? Or what do you think about this author? Or what do you think about this? I'm happy to do that. But you need to be able to grow and to be able to discern some yourself, right? It's not just that Pastor Dom or Pastor Joe or Pastor Mark or Pastor Matt or Pastor whoever will be the ones that discern for us. No, you grow in that. So how do you grow in that? Well, it's, it's pretty simple, but it's, it's not easy. You grow in your relationship with the Lord, and you grow in your knowledge of his word. Now, we're going to get the doctrinal word side this morning, but you begin to increase your level of Bible knowledge and acumen, your ability to study, your ability to compare what culture says or what the message of that movie is to what the gospel and the scriptures actually say. You work on that. There's not a shortcut to that. This is why, as a church, we make a big deal of the Bible. Why? Well, we just, I don't know, we felt like it. We just, you know, we, we rolled some dice and said, if it's, if, it's, uh, if it's eight, we'll pick the Bible. No. It tells us to. This is why when you come to, to church on Sunday, you're going to get a very Bible-rich worship gathering. You're going to get 40 minutes, maybe more, who knows, depends on the Sunday. Uh, but you're going to get... a chunk of time devoted to let's read this let's study this let's learn this this is why in our groups we want to open the bible we want to open our our lives to love each other but we want to open the bible to learn this is why we have a discipleship program this is why there is a version app or a dwell app and there are church plans that you can read and you can go together with and you can digest the scriptures together this is why i'm going to encourage you to read the scriptures on your own to study on your own this is why when we pick songs we pick the songs we sing with intention, and we want them to drip with theology. We want them to drip with the message of the Bible. Why? There's a point. We want you to be able to discern, to be able to know what you believe matters. Because if you do not, if you do not believe anything, then you will believe everything. You will be tossed about with every wind of doctrine. You will be easy prey for false teachers. You will be very suspect to things that kind of look Christian or mention Jesus, but really are not. And here's the point. God never intended for you to be a spiritual tumbleweed that just gets blown across the desert wherever, wherever someone says. That's, that's, not, that's not healthy. He wants you to be an oak. He wants you to, to plant roots. You know, Pastor, I don't know, that, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, maybe, but you can do it. I believe in you, okay? I, I don't know, it's too complicated. Have you read the Bible recently? It's, it's a little complex. It's, it's, it's not a kindergarten document, I will admit, but you can figure it out. You figured out the remote to your TV that looks like it controls NASA's space station, didn't you? You, you figured out what all those buttons do. I believe in you. You can do it. Well, I don't have time. I don't, I don't believe you. I love you, but I don't believe you. You found time for social media, and you found time for your favorite shows, and you found time to go to your hobby, and you found time to golf two times this week, and you found time for whatever you wanted to find time for, and you picked up the third sports league for your kids, and you, you figured it out, didn't you? Don't tell me you can't squeeze in 20 minutes to be able to read the Bible at some point in time or be, have the time to come to a group or come to church consistently that you can't do those things. You can. You can. And our excuses are very lame most of the time on why we don't do this, but we need to do this. We must learn. We must grow. And my challenge to you would be, first of all, are you committed to being grounded? of knowing the scriptures for yourself, studying for yourself. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17, right? They were this group of people that they received the word, but it says when they received the word, they received it with all readiness of mind, meaning their brain was engaged. And it says that they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They didn't even take the, the message of the apostles for granted and just be like okay whatever you say goes no they engaged their brain they looked at the bible they compared scripture with scripture and said is this true is this right be those people be those people verse number two hereby know we the spirit of god 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. All right, so it's simple. How do I test the spirits? How do I discern the spirits? Well, here's how he says. There's a theology test. You must be able to confess that Jesus is the Christ. We saw that in chapter number two. He's the appointed one, the the anointed one, the Messiah, uh, the one who dies for our sins. You must be able to confess that he has come in the flesh, the incarnation, right? You have to be able to confess Christmas. Jesus was not just man or just God. Theologians, big word, call this the hypostatic union, that there is the full Godhead and full man, both together in Jesus. He's come in the flesh. God looked down and said, I'm coming. That is Jesus. You have to be able to confess that. Verse 3, the opposite. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And that is the spirit of Antichrist, whereof we have heard that it should come, and even now it is already in the world. Look down at verses 14 and 15. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. Put, put it together. This isn't the whole theological spectrum, but this is where you start. Jesus is the Christ. The incarnation is real. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And John says, we'll get to love in a minute, but if you can't confess that, if you don't claim that, if you don't believe that, then you're not on team Jesus. And if, you're not, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father, you don't know God. So in response to Bishop Lee's claim that we should commit heresy in order to keep people together, that's wrong. You have to have clear lines of demarcation that the Bible laid out, not ones that you invent for yourself. And to be able to say, this is the truth, if you don't claim this, then we're not on the same team. I don't hate you, I don't actively work against you, I'm not malicious towards you, that's not what I'm saying at all. But let's not pretend like these things are the same, things that are different are not the same. And John says, let's start here, let's start with a theological test, can you can you say and confess this? I was doing a little poking around uh, this weekend on the um, Unitarian Universalist Association website. If you're like, what's a Unitarian Universalist Association? It would be the opposite of what I would be. It would be, let's, let's love at all costs, doctrine doesn't matter, right? It's, who cares, let's just come together. So I was, uh, if you want to go to one of these churches, then um, they're around. There's one in Murraysville, there's one in Wexford, there's several in the city. And I looked on their website, and there was a message from the president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I said, oh, I'm curious, what do you have to say to me? So I pulled up the message, it was posted just a, a few days ago, from Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, the president. And it's four minutes long, it's on their, it's on their homepage, you can go look at it um, today if you want to. Knock yourself out. I didn't want to bore you with four minutes, so I just chose a brief excerpt that is all of about 15 seconds, and I want you to watch this, okay? And we'll watch it one time, guys, and see if what jumps out to me jumps out to you. Go ahead and play this. As Unitarian Universalists, we are called to care for each other and to create resilient, theologically imaginative spiritual community that sustains us and inspires us as we navigate what's to come and what is needed. All right, that's one sentence. And on the surface, it, I mean, it, it sounds great. It, 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 we want to be sustained. We want to be inspired, right? We want to be resilient. It sounds fantastic. But I don't know if you, if you caught the phrase that jumped out to me. We want to establish theologically imaginative communities. Okay? You say, Pastor, you're mean to pick on people. I'm, I'm here to help you. Okay? I'm here to say, this is our church, this is our flock, let me guard the flock. I love imagination. I love creativity. But if there is one thing we do not need when it comes to theology, it is your imagination. Okay? Creative expression is welcome in so many venues. 
But when it comes to the exegesis of the scriptures and understanding theology, we don't need your creative expression, nor do we need mine. There is a message that has been handed down for millennia, literally, that started in the Old Testament, and what was concealed in the Old Testament was revealed in the New, in, in the person of Jesus Christ, and what he taught, the apostles took and passed on to the early church, which has been handed down, and we, we retain that message. We don't tinker with it. We don't play with that. That's, it's not okay to take theology and to mess with it so that you can come together in the name of unity. It doesn't work that way. And here is what John says very clearly. Look, doctrine matters. What you believe matters. Theology matters. And you need more than good intentions. The idea that you can just, as long as you're well-intentioned and you shove it in God's direction... It's, it's, it's all the same. It does, that, practically, it doesn't even make sense. Husbands, how many of you have realized that your well-intentioned actions, oftentimes the intention doesn't matter that much because you just absolutely fell short? Ever been there? My intentions were pure, and I was trying, but this was the opposite of what she wanted and needed, Right? If you, are, if you were to go, just say today, you're like, I need to go make a birthday cake today. And you look at the recipe, and the recipe calls for two eggs. You need to be able to define what two eggs is. Good intentions won't cut it. If you put two Cadbury eggs in the recipe, as good as Cadbury eggs are, your cake will be nasty, right? If you take two ostrich eggs, real eggs, your cake will be nasty. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned you were. The cake doesn't care. It tastes disgusting. You need to be able to know what that means. What does two eggs mean, right? Two large eggs from a chicken from Walmart. That's what it means. When you come to theology, you can't say, well, eh, nah, and then it says Savior of the world. What does Savior of the world mean? Son of God. Son of God, Shaman of God, I don't know, what does that mean? Who, as long as we're well-intentioned, it just push it in God's direction. That, that don't work. It doesn't work anywhere in life, including theology. You can't do that. And John says, let's be clear. You have to confess, you have to profess Jesus. Verse number four. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I wish I had a whole sermon on this, but what he's saying is, the devil's no match for the Holy Spirit. He that is in the world versus he that is in you, uh, there, there's no match there. There's no, there's no contest there. It's a note of encouragement. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. Verse 6, the opposite, we're of God, and he that knoweth God heareth us, and he that is not of God heareth us not. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What is he saying? He's saying we're on a different wavelength. The false prophets that come out of the world are going to speak to the world, and they're going to focus on lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. They're going to focus on what do you want to be, and what do you want to do, and, and uh, what do you want to have? You want happiness? Then let's get that. Oh, you want to be somebody? Then you can be somebody. Uh, he's, they're going to focus on that, and they're going to be on that wavelength. They're cut from the same cloth. But we are of God. We're on a completely different wavelength, and we're not hearing the same thing. I, just this last week, went over and knocked on the door of my Vietnamese neighbors because they had, for about a week or so, had music playing round the clock outside of their house, and it was, it's low music, and it's, it was just like the same chant over and over again set to a melody. And I didn't hear it inside the house, it was just when I went outside the house to, whatever, be in the yard with the kids or ride the bike or those sorts of things, and it, it wasn't even that annoying, it was just kind of like... I don't know why this is. Why is there music playing around the clock suddenly? So I was curious, you know. I, I walked closer to the house and I saw this little bitty speaker inside of a sandwich baggie plugged into the external outlet of their house and it was playing the music. I thought, I, my curiosity has to be satisfied. Like, I have to go know why is this and what is this. So I just, I knocked on their door. And, uh, and they came to the door. I said, you got to tell me. Why, why is there this, this jingle that's just playing around the clock, you know? And they went on to tell me, they're, they're Buddhist. Um, there's, an, there's a spirit 
that is after them, more or less. It, it knocks on their door, and when they answer the door, no one's there. It rings their doorbell, and no one's there. And then when they look on the security camera, nothing's there, but they're, everyone in the house, here's the knock, here's the doorbell, here's the stuff. And so we're trying to make the spirit happy. And so we're playing music, and there was this little tray of, of food, and there was some incense that they had been burning, and we want this to, to sound good and smell good and taste good, and we want to appease the spirit, which the supernatural realm and paranormal activity exists. I wasn't like, you're a bunch of weirdos. Like, I'm like, I believe you. And I, I told him, I said, hey, we, I, know, I don't believe like you believe, but if you want me to pray over your house in the name of Jesus, I, I would be, I'd be happy to. I'd, I'd be happy to, to do that for you. And they said, oh, yeah, we believe in Jesus too. I said, really? Tell me about the Jesus you believe in. And so I, I got a crash course on Buddhism Jesus, you know, that Jesus was the, the reincarnation of Buddha himself and one of many Buddhas and one of many gods and that the teachings more or less line up with each other. And so I got this whole spiel for five minutes on Buddhist Jesus. And, and I gracefully... And tactfully, but I've, I've looked at the lady who I was talking to, and I said, you know, that's, that's not the same Jesus I believe in. Jesus said, words out of his mouth, that he was the only way, and he was, he was the only truth. He was the only life. She said, really? I said, he sure did. But Jesus said that there was only one God. He did? He sure did. I said, if you ever want to know more, you know, about what Jesus actually said, I'd, I'd love to share it with you. And that was kind of the, the end of our conversation. But Buddhist Jesus, or Muslim Jesus, or Christian Science Jesus, is not the same Jesus presented in the pages of Scripture. It's just not. I'm not being hateful. I'm not being unkind. I'm just being clear. It's just not. They don't confess what you have to confess to be a follower of Jesus. What Jesus said about himself, what the apostles taught. They don't. So how does this mingle with love because this sounds awfully exclusive and most in our society would say that's the problem right it's you religious people who are being exclusive and you're drawing these lines and you're dividing everybody and you can't come together and you can't coexist and you can't get on the same page you know that's that's the problem religion's the problem what you're doing that's the problem that's why we don't have unity that's why we don't have peace and to be honest, there is a measure of truth to that. It's, it's not like religion in general and even some brands of Christianity have done a good job over the years. Like religious crusaders picking up their sword in the name of Jesus to go conquest versus the Muslims was not a biblical idea. So like I'm sympathetic to that argument to a degree. But I would like to point out, number one, that everybody has exclusive beliefs, okay? The idea that some people are inclusive and some people are exclusive is not true because I, I would say hey if you want to know God then you have to pick up the baton of Jesus is the only way that's how you get included now those that would look at me and say you're exclusive and that's terrible and you're the problem would say you can be in our group if you'll lay down the baton of Jesus is the only way right I will be excluded from their group because I won't put down the baton. They're excluded from my group because I won't pick up the baton. We're both exclusive. So the idea that somehow the secular world is very tolerant and inclusive and will accept everybody, accept all the religious people, which is the majority of the world, versus the religious people who have their exclusions, that's, that's a non-starter. Everybody's exclusive. But why is Christianity better? That's a big question. And it is better. Why? Well, it's because of verses 7 through 11. 1 through 6 on their own, problem. At least can be. 7 through 11 on its own, problem. But let's put the two together. 7 through 11, quickly. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, time out for just a minute. There are some commentators and theologians that would disagree with me on this, but that's okay. When it says we're to love one another, is he referring back to love the brethren? Because all through John, he's beat this drum, love the brethren, love the brethren, love the brethren. And he'll pick up that exact verbiage at the end of the chapter again. He changes the verbiage to one another instead of brethren. And he also now gives the example of love in God. So I personally believe he's broadening the scope of who a Christian has to love. There is the love test that we love each other fiercely, 
But there is also a love test that we love our enemies that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. And that he is broadening this, that, we are, that we're loving everyone in the way that God did. And we'll see this in just a second. But he says God is love. Now he doesn't say, I have to be clear, he doesn't say love is God. He doesn't say that emotion is God. He says God is love. He's saying this is an attribute of God, love. It's not his only attribute, but it's one of them. And this is such a pervasive attribute that it is so powerful that I can equate this to God, really, and refer to God as love. Here is love, verse number 9. The love of God was manifested toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is radically different than other religions. Other religions will say, perform, work, follow the rules, take the eightfold path to enlightenment, whatever it is, take your trip to Mecca, somehow put a smile on God's face. And if you can put a smile on God's face, then he will accept you, then perhaps he will bless you, perhaps he will give you eternal life, perhaps you can be one of his if you do that. Christianity says, no, 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 no. This is love. Not that we loved him, but he loved us, and he initiated that love, and he atoned for our sins. Christianity is a savior dying in our place so that non-performers can be saved and rescued, right? Vastly different. Not perform so you can earn his favor. Non-performers are welcome to be rescued. Verse number 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we had also to love one another. So he returns to the point. If you know the love of God, if you know the propitiation for your sins, if you know him atoning for you, if you know him dying for you and loving you, then you will be a dispenser of that love. So he's given two tests, a, a doctrinal test and a love test. And it makes sense. If this morning we, uh, we sang our songs and it came time for me to get up and to, and to do my thing. And I didn't get up. And 10 seconds went by, and you guys all looked around awkwardly. Where, I, don't, I don't see him. Where is he? And a minute went by, and four minutes went by, and five minutes later, after you sitting here awkwardly, I came in a little disheveled, right? And I, I walk in. I say, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm late, obviously. But I was driving down 28 this morning, and... Um, Hey, I, I've, I've got, I got a flat tire, and I had to pull over. I was, I was trying to rush to get here. I pulled over. I changed the tire, and a lug nut went across 28. And I, I went to grab the lug nut, and a semi running 75 miles an hour, you know, smashed me. It hit me. And it just, it took me a little while to recover. And, uh, you know, I'm here. <laughs> now, you would, you would say, I don't know how much of that story is not true, but I at least know part of it's not true right? You're lying. Why? Because you can't get hit with a semi running 75 miles an hour and not look different and talk different and you would be different, right? And this is a classic illustration several pastors have given it over the years. You can't be hit with the love of God which is the most powerful love in the universe, and not look different and act different and talk different and be different. If a 13-year-old is hit with little puppy love and they look different and act different and think different and they are different because of little puppy love, if you get hit with the love of a child that now there's this parental love towards I have a child in my hands for the first time or you walk in that kid's room and they're sleeping and you're like overwhelmed with love of this, this little person that I'm responsible for, if that overwhelms you, then how much greater the most magnificent love in the universe that John talked about in this book Behold, what manner of love is this? What kind of love is this that we should be called the sons of God? You can't feel that and not be different. You can't feel that and not love. That has to come out, is what he's saying. So you put them together, and you have a very exclusive Christianity that says Jesus is the only way. 
but you have a very inclusive, I want to love everyone as Jesus loved. And this actually is the best solution possible because this will produce in you. If you have verses 1 through 6 without 7 through 11, you are going to be truth without love. And you are going to be abrasive and painful and cold and hard. If you have 7 through 11, but you don't have 1 through 6, then you're going to be lovey-dovey and inclusive and wonderful and arms wide open, but there will be nothing to clearly define you. You'll be hypocritical to Christianity. Both. And if you understand the love of God, you will do it in a way that is actually winsome and helpful for the world. Because it will produce an intellectual humility that you need. Christians are the only people that say, I'm saved, I'm of God, I'm his child, but it's not because I'm better than you. It's not because I kept the rules. It's not because I'm a goody-two-shoes. It's not because I'm morally superior. It's not because I'm a great person. It's the opposite. I'm not a great person. I was a sinner, and he died for my sins. So it allows you to present the truth of the gospel and the truth of Jesus in a humble spirit, not elevating yourself above that other religious person or, or above uh, that secular person. Yes, my truth is truth, and I don't believe yours, but I'm, I'm not better than you. I'm not superior to you. You see the humility that produces? Other religions don't have this. It's, I've, I'm right with God because I'm better. Get your act together. Secular people don't have this. Secular people are, well, you're what's wrong with the world today. You primitive religious people, you know, grow up and get with the times and, and, and catch up. You know, get your brain in gear and, and look at the science and, and eventually you'll catch up. There's this looking down on people all the time. Christianity says, here's my truth, but I don't look down on you. I don't look down on you. I'm no better than you. Christianity allows you to present the truth and hold the truth in love. What is love? Well, love is manifest that God loved us and died for us while we were sinners. What does that mean? Christianity says God in the flesh. And anyone who hears that, who doesn't know Jesus, would say you're obviously thinking you're superior, you know. My founder's God, yours is just a man, man, and a boo, boo. That's what they hear. Like, we're better. But no, look at God in the flesh. He's dying for those that hate him. He's praying for those that nail him to a cross. He's forgiving those who aren't asking for his forgiveness. There is reconciling behavior being pushed in their direction, the enemy's direction, even though they don't deserve it. And Christians understand. We hold the truth, but we hold it in this love, and we demonstrate reconciling behavior. And I, I do not hold the truth in a hateful, spiteful, malicious, vengeful, cold, angry, cantankerous way. I do this in a way where I love you and I want to serve you and I want to bless you even though you're opposed to me. And if Christians can get that, these two things right and in concert with each other, would that not be the most magnificent, attractive thing we could possibly do? The truth is the truth, but I love you no matter what. It's interesting when Christianity took shape it's in the first century, right? It's in the context of Romans who have a pantheon of gods and Caesarea, you can believe a lot of different things. Greeks who have a pantheon of gods and believe a lot of things. Christians step onto the scene and they're like, Jesus is the only way, you know? You would think that they were the most exclusive bunch of people ever. But if, if you look at history, Christianity is the most inclusive thing to ever smack the world in the face come the first century. All of a sudden in the church, the socioeconomic boundaries are gone. They're getting along. The ethnic boundaries, Jew, Greek, Gentile, all that stuff, gone. The bond and free, gone. Male and female, gone. And it's this eclectic, 
amalgamation of all these different people coming together under the banner of Jesus. How did that happen? Well, it's not just exclusive. It is exclusive in the truth, but it is, there's love that's pushed out to everyone and is modeled by Jesus himself. And it's our job as a church to be people who hold both of those in concert. I love like Jesus loved, even my enemies. But I do not sacrifice the truth. I'm done. I want to read one verse. It's almost as if John has this perhaps in the back of his mind. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4. He says, We henceforth should be no more children that are tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But we should be speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Let me paraphrase it. Don't be a spiritual tumbleweed. Don't be a little baby who's suspect to any prey that's going to come along and devour you. But be people who know the truth and speak the truth and do it in love. Why? So that we can come up into him in all things, who's the head, even Christ. Because, as we're saying, that's what Jesus did. Because we want to be like Christ. That's what he did. So be like him as a Christian. Have the truth, have the love, put them together. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to try to understand this text. And I pray that we as your people would work on this. Lord, we're thankful for your love. Father, you sent your son to demonstrate that love, to show us what true love really is. You, you died on the cross for our sins. You have implanted your spirit in us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love others as you have loved us. And I pray that you would help us to hold the truth in that love. And I pray that they would see you and your love through us. May we work on this. May we make this our task. Lord, I pray that we would grow, that we would be discerning, that we would be loving. And it's in the name of Jesus. This morning, I want you to remain in the spirit of prayer, and I want you just to talk to the Lord. If you're a Christian, at the very least, thank him for dying for your sins and being the propitiation for your sins. Perhaps you need to do a little bit of inventory. Maybe you tend to hold the truth, but you struggle with the love part. Maybe you are great at the love part, but you struggle to hold the truth. Whichever one you're most deficient in, would you pray and say, God, help me to grow there. I want to be better at that. I, I want both of these to be present in my life. If you're in the room and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, then I want to encourage you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. I don't know that I could have said it more clearly, but he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah, he is the Savior of the world. He is God in the flesh. He died for your sins. He initiated and pursued you, and if you will respond to his love, he will take you, he will clean you up, he will forgive your sins, and he will put you in his family. And if you would like to be in that family and you would like to know God, maybe right where you sit, call out to him. Just pray something like this. Just say, Jesus... Today, I put my faith and trust in you. I believe that you're the Christ. I believe that you died for my sins. And I'm asking you to save me. You're the Savior of the world, but Jesus, be my personal Savior. Forgive me and clean me of my sins. And give me a home in heaven. If you will ask him, he says that he will save you. It's not about what you do. It's not about if you've been baptized. It's not about what brand of church you go to. It's about saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Father, one more time we come and we're grateful to be able to have clarity. I'm grateful that you did not leave us to flounder with direction in your word, but that you made it understandable, intelligible, and that we can see clearly where these lines of division are 
Jesus, we confess this morning, we profess you. We want to make your name great. We do not want to shy away from who you are. We do not want to distort the reality of your identity. Give us boldness in this endeavor. Give us hearts of tenderness and hearts of love while we do it. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, I want to thank you for being here this morning. Uh, I want to let you know two things. Number one, I love you. And number two, uh, we're going to watch an announcement video. It's two minutes long. It'll tell you a few things that are coming up. So watch this. As soon as it's done, you can be dismissed. Guys, go ahead and play it. Good morning, church. We're glad you're here. If you're new to Harvest, welcome. We're glad you chose to worship with us. One of our pastors would love to meet you at the welcome desk after the service. Let's check out what's coming up next here at Harvest. On September 18th, we'll be hosting our annual Friends Day. This is a Sunday set apart to open our doors to the community, provide a place for getting to know one another, and of course, center it all around Jesus. Pick up some invitations just like this one that can be found in the track racks, and they'd be great to hand out to a bunch of your friends. There will be food trucks, bounce houses, and our annual cornhole tournament during this afternoon. So grab a partner and register on the website to be a part of this competition. Harvest Baptist Church will be hosting a statewide abolition conference on Thursday, September 15th till Saturday, September 17th. This conference is the first gospel-centered, life-supporting conference in Pennsylvania since the United States Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade earlier this year. Attendees can expect biblical teaching from abolitionists across the country, worship sessions, great fellowship, and even an opportunity to witness to the Pittsburgh abortion clinics. You can find out more information and purchase your ticket at abolishabortionpa.com or you can pick up a flyer just like this one at the welcome desk. Mark your calendars, the 15th annual sports classic golf outing benefiting the student athletes at Harvest Baptist Academy will take place on Saturday, September 10th at the Lynx in Spring Church. The outing is the main source of income for the sports program at Harvest Baptist Academy. All skill levels are welcome and are invited to sign up to play. Sign up and come out for a great day of golf, food, prizes, and fellowship. You can pick up a brochure in the lobby at the welcome desk. We hope to see you on the golf course. Our intro to Harvest class is coming up on Sunday, September 4th, and we'd love to take this opportunity to get to know you better. If you have any questions about the church or would like to get to know the pastors, please stop by so that we can meet you and help in any way we can. We're looking forward to our next night of worship on September 11th at 6 p.m. Praising God through song is a way we can collectively join together and unify our hearts through the truth of the gospel. Whether you're a singer or not, we hope you'll come and make a joyful noise with us on September 11th. Just a friendly reminder to be neighborly and drive safely through the neighborhood while exiting the church property. Thanks for spending time with us today. Remember to follow us on social media to stay connected throughout the week with what's happening here at Harvest. Until next